One of the strategies for establishing a culture of psychological health and safety in an organization is to focus on building the psychological fitness of the members of the organization. We'll speak with a coach, speaker, author, and advisor on mental health in the workplace on this episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Safety at work is more than freedom from physical injury. To be safe, you have to feel safe. Join us each week as we discuss psychologically healthy and safe work in the USA. Welcome to this week's Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. I'm your host, Dr. I. David Daniels, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Each week, we seek to increase awareness of the importance of psychological health and safety by learning from the lived experiences, research, and expertise of our guests, as well as advocating strategies to reduce harm and minimize vulnerability to psychosocial hazards in the American workplace. The focus of this podcast is psychological health and safety, and we approach it from an occupational health and safety perspective. One of the ways that we can avoid or become more resilient to physical injuries and physical risk and physical hazards in the workplace is to be more physically fit. In today's episode, we're going to talk about that same concept, but from a psychological perspective. So what is it that are there things that we can do to actually be psychologically stronger and psychologically tougher and psychologically more resilient when we're faced with psychosocial hazards in our environment? There are many cases that the psychosocial hazards can't be eliminated in every case. It would be wonderful if we could, but it's not a realistic expectation. Therefore, it is important that we have a sense of psychological fitness. And so today's guest is someone who understands the importance of psychological fitness and understands it to the extent that she even wrote a book about it. Uh, so our guest today is Dr. Karen Dahl. She's a licensed psychologist. She's a coach and an author, and she's going to take us to school uh, on how to be more psychologically fit, particularly in the workplace. And uh, we're going to start that conversation by a question that I tend to ask folks when they come on the podcast. Who is Dr. Karen Dahl? Well, thank you so much for having me, David. I'm excited to be here and see how our worlds are intersecting. Um, so who am I? I am a mom of five. I have two high school and three college kids. I live in Minnesota with my husband, Bill. Uh, as you mentioned, I am a psychologist and I've always worked in the workplace. So I've always been in workplace mental health. I haven't necessarily been able to call it that as openly and freely as, as we're able to now in the last uh, three or four years. And um, I recently wrote my book, Building Psychological Fitness, and love having conversations like this to raise awareness of mental health and specifically mental health in the workplace. Wow. Wow. I, I, you're one of the first folks that I've interviewed here in the U.S. who's uh, been willing to share that they've kind of been talking about this for a while and now we can kind of come out and say it <laughs> and, and people have some idea what we're talking about. So what does psychological health and safety, when you hear that set of words, 
What does that mean to you? Well, when I think of psychological health, I'm thinking mental and emotional well-being and having the ability to cope effectively and not have unnecessary distress and to show up and be effective at work. Uh, and nowadays, the workplace is really seen for many people, unfortunately, as a source of stress and distress. And I really believe that we can use the workplace we deserve to and could and should um, see the workplace as a pathway to thriving and flourishing and have the workplace really be a source of well-being rather than a source of distress. Wow. That, that, that also is, uh, it seems to be kind of unique for some people um, it, because I, I have conversations with folks often and they talk mm -hmm. about, distress at work in, in such a way that it's, it's kind of accepted, to be quite honest. There's this expectation mm -hmm. that work's going to be, you know, really difficult. Oh, it's, you know, I'm here today. I'm, I'm, I'm barely here. My, or my body's here and my brain isn't because I'm actually thinking about being on a beach someplace or, or anywhere other than here. And I, mm -hmm. I, I find that rather interesting. C can you, can you think of, uh, or, or was there an event or something that you saw uh, in, in the past, either in your own work experience or others, that got you focused on this topic? Well, certainly the last three years has accelerated um, the, the topic of mental health and psychological safety at work. And so many more conversations are happening and we're making progress. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, but I mean, I agree with you. I think that there's sort of an automatic assumption that people relate work with stress. Mm -hmm. And was it always that way? I mean, I think, I think that that has been going on since before COVID. Right. I think people associate work with exertion and maybe as becoming in like a state of depletion and having workplace challenges. And I, I think this is a really good opportunity to challenge that, challenge that assumption and look at how could this be better? And in this place and moment in time, what can we all do to not only just reduce harm in the workplace, but prevent and have preventative measures in place to keep people safe and not only keep them safe, but allow for thriving and flourishing and having work be something that can make our lives better. So I do think there's shared accountability you know, where does the change take place? I think organizations have a responsibility to create an infrastructure that is going to be health promoting and not harming. And managers and leaders have a responsibility to create conditions that are going to be um, conducive for people to, to be effective and thrive and flourish and set up for success. And then we as individuals all have our own responsibility to manage our own mental health and well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so share, share a little bit about, um, how you got into the uh, mental health professional field. Uh, what, so did you sit around when you were a kid and I'm going to be a psychologist someday or did it happen la later on in life? I mean, honestly, it kind of did. It kind really? of did happen like that. I, I was always interested in understanding people. I was always a question asker, somebody that was really curious about getting to know people and learning about their motivations and drives. And, you know, when I was younger, of course, I, I wouldn't have known to call it that, but 
but upon reflection, looking back, I've, I've sort of always been interested in that space. I did start off as a communication major in college and I did some internships in Washington, DC and thought I wanted to go into the media and maybe go into broadcasting. And then once I got a little flavor of what sort of sacrifice that involves and um, the, you know, frequent moving around, then I went back to kind of my roots and my interest in psychology and uh, majored in psychology and then pursued graduate school. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, so the term or the phrase psychological fitness, how, how does, how does that come about? Well, how that came about. So the book in general um, came from this energy that I had during COVID. I, I do a lot of coaching. I coach a lot of individuals and groups And as you can imagine, um, lots of people were reaching out for help during that time. And so I was having a lot of conversations with just a high volume of people about the struggle and how people were, their lives were so disrupted. And during COVID, just the, the increasing levels of isolation and anxiety. And I would hear this from people every day, all day, and then kind of forget or realize that. I'm having these conversations with people, but they aren't having them with each other enough Mm. because there's, there was, and still is really, I think a very strong sentiment of few people feeling like they're the only one. It looks like everybody else is killing it. Everything is so hard for me. Why am I struggling so much like this? Um, And so I just had energy around trying to raise the issue that we are, we are, we all have our own version of struggling and to do my part, uh, to try and reduce the stigma, give people permission to talk about it. And so that's where the energy came to write the book. And the book really is just to enhance mental health awareness and help us understand that we have some agency and there are interventions and things and practices that we can do to increase our mental health, no matter where we are on the continuum. And so the title essentially came from, I I did a lot of research and a lot of interviewing people to see what language would resonate. And I selected psychological fitness just because it has, it has a message of hope and people can generally relate just like you started off our discussion today that, you know, we, we want to be fit. It's a desirable state. We want to be physically fit. That's, that's something that, you know, we, we work towards and we're told is, is healthy and positive and will bring positive change in our lives. And, and so I, I just kind of tried to make the language accessible for people Hmm. um, because it applies to all of us. We all have mental health. We might not all have anxiety disorders, but we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health. Right. Right. So it was my attempt at trying to make the information relatable and the barrier of entry low for people to have access to it without it being off-putting or isolating so that more people would relate. Right. Yeah. An important point you make about um, keeping the bar fairly low because I, I can, I can, I can tell you myself that, that until, Oh, I'd say probably the last few years, a little bit, 
prior to COVID, I, I got a little bit more interested. I, I, and I guess I really should be honest as I think about it. I've, oh boy, I've, I've had a therapist of my own. I've switched up for about the last 10 years. And often I, I, I found myself in a session because something happened. There's a thing that, you know, triggered something in me and I find myself in therapy around it, uh, particularly about, about 12 years ago. And, you know, that happened. And again, it was in my work life, uh, that had me and I was still at the job and I found myself in these regular therapy sessions just to be able to go back to work. And, uh, so, and I find that a lot of people, that's when it comes up is after something occurs, something triggers something. There's some kind of reaction. And a lot of times it is associated with the things that we do, our professions, our work, our job, however we describe it, our careers. And so this idea about being psychologically fit in advance. So are there exercises <laughs> that, that can cause you to be psychologically fit? Just like, we would, again, we go out jogging or resistance training or Pilates or or, or whatever it is, are there psychological exercises that we can do? Absolutely. Like as a preventative measure, yes. So we can build those muscles and put emotional deposits in your psychological bank account. I love that you brought that up about going to therapy in response to a stressor. Um, and that's that's something that I'm I, I'm hoping that we're shifting the narrative on. Like, let's not wait until we are ill or we have dis-ease or illness um, or such a level of distress that we're having trouble functioning to seek out psychological support and resources. Because there are practices and things that we can do to equip ourselves to enhance our resilience so that we are better equipped to respond in the face of adversity. Sure. Doesn't mean we're not going to have tough times, right? Uh, but there, but there are things that we can do to prepare, and um, that will also help us recover more quickly when we experience setbacks or challenges. So, can um, what's what's an example or two of some of those things that you know? Of course, there are so many possibilities here. Of course, but could you share a couple of you know? Things that would be relatable. Uh, I could, uh, a person could go out and do and then fill in the blank. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, so at a high level, a lot of the practices are sort of um, centered around um, foundations of stress management because that's often what people will complain about is, you know, I have trouble managing stress. So there are interventions that some we would call top-down interventions. So those would be cognitively related. So um, checking out your what your triggers are, what your cognitive, your thinking traps might be. So we all have our own version of distorted thinking that we can engage in when fear is triggered or when an unpleasant emotion comes up. So for example, you know, we can catastrophize or engage in all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking. And then that impacts our emotional experience and our mood. And it's not always right-sized. Mm. So doing the practice of cognitive reframing um, and these practices can be done offline. So for example, it's very hard to apply it real time. You know, when I'm triggered and I'm feeling really anxious to go, the, the situations don't always allow for 
me to step out and do a cognitive reframing practice. But even upon reflection later, you know, to understand what are some patterns and trends that show up for us with some of those thinking traps that cause us to exaggerate um, our thoughts. And and we want to make sure we don't become enslaved by mm. our thoughts and feelings. So our thoughts and feelings are signals, they're information, yet they're not necessarily complete or fully true or fact-based. So the practice is really like beginning to put your thoughts on trial and challenging some of those assumptions and ask myself, like, is what do I know to be true here? Wow. Putting your thoughts on trial. Hmm. That that's also just a kind of a unique way, at least unique to me, unique way of thinking about this because and what I hear often is uh folks who will suggest, you know, I've I've been this way since, you know, since I was a child. And, you know, they'll start to recant their uh, adverse childhood experiences and how they've affected. And these are folks in their 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, you know, really elderly in some cases. And they've been that way for so long that sometimes it's it's as if they have some trepidation or fear around putting those thoughts on trial. Because the reality, you know, I, I've, I've always looked at things this way. And, but you're also at the same time, you also have this discussion going on with yourself that that doesn't feel good, that that doesn't feel healthy. But then you kind of go back and continue to do it. You know what they say is if you continue, continue to do the same thing, you're going to get the same thing that you got. So, um, so, so, so talk a little bit about, you know, about that, about that phenomenon. Folks, they've, they've been this way. As long as they can remember, um, mm-hmm. how do you get that uh, that person to start thinking about prevention when it's such a habit for them? Yeah, it's a good question. And with, you know, always we just have to meet people where they are. And we probably all have versions of that, that we, we've core beliefs that we have developed and infused over time that become reinforced. Um, and they're familiar and we can, we tend to stick with what's familiar, even if it's not positive or even if it's not helpful or generative, our default is to, is to fall back to that. So, um, understanding, beginning to just open the door to understand it feels real, but just because it feels one way doesn't mean that it is. So it's, Engaging in like the mental and emotional hygiene to understand that we see things as we are, not as they are. Oh, another nugget. (laughs) So we all have filters, right? We all have ways in which we interpret things in the world, which are real to us based on our genetics, our conditioning, what our culture tells us, our life experience, all of that informs our mental models and we all have those filters that that's how we interpret things in the world. So you and I can have a similar experience, but our personal experience of it is, could be vastly different. Right. So I I think it's important to note, like it's, it's real. Those are real and they're incomplete. Mm. So if you looked into my life, you know, you, you would see some things that I don't see. 
doesn't mean that what I'm experiencing is wrong, but my perception is incomplete. Right, right. And so ideally, we want to have healthy perspectives and interpretations that are accurate and serve us and promote health. Right. So you you mentioned earlier that you've been having this conversation about uh, the workplace and how the workplace impacts this whole discussion about psychological fitness. Uh, What does the workplace have to do with it? I mean, again, I think there are some, particularly on the employer side, (laughs) who believe that we should simply be able to leave all that stuff that's going on outside of work, leave it, leave it at home and come on in and do my job and uh, be quote unquote professional and it shouldn't bother me or stress is just simply a part of it. So, so how do you have these conversations about psychological fitness and the interplay or interaction that it has with the workplace? I really believe that we are a whole self and we go with ourselves wherever we go. So people used to ask, and they don't so much anymore, just because we have a little more awareness around these these topics and these issues. But when people used to come to coaching, they would often say, well, is this my home self or my work self? And my response was usually, well, you're the same self. Mm. So your behaviors might be a little different at work or in the conference room than they are in the living room. And now in the last three years, the conference room is the living room. In many cases. So, you know, that, that already doesn't, doesn't apply. So, I mean, I think what COVID did was just it, 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 it provided a universal opportunity for that, for those spaces to permeate. And we did have the chance to be witness into each other's personal lives a little bit more. Um, but I, I just, I believe a healthy person, a healthy self is going to show up and be more effective at work. So a workplace can say, leave, leave all that at home and just show up and do the work. I mean, you can operate that way. It's just, it's not a good strategy because an organization is going to get much stronger performance and productivity fostering the mental health and well-being of their talent and their employees. So I always think like the, the practices of becoming psychologically fit or enhancing mental health and well-being are helpful, yet we don't do we don't engage in them as an end goal. We engage in those practices so that we can show up at work and be effective and so that we can help others and serve others. Because there are plenty of people that might have strong well-being and they're healthy and they drink water and get exercise and whatnot, but perhaps they're miserable, miserable human beings to other people. Mm. So then well-being in and of itself isn't enough. We want to have foster well-being so that we can be in community effectively with each other. Mm. Mm. So, so help me with a, a thought that I have about, <laughs> I tend to put a lot of things in this category, but I, 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 often question whether or not you can treat others well when you don't have a great uh, self-image and and, and view of yourself. And and, and for example, I I believe that a lot of the mistrust 
that goes on in the workplace is because I mistrust me first. I, I, I'm just not, I don't, I don't have confidence in myself, my imposter syndrome, whatever it might be. I don't really feel that good about me. So therefore I don't feel that good about you either. And instead of dealing with me, I skip over me and try to spend my time trying to get you fixed. Oh, if the if the workers will do this and if the employees will do that, when really the challenge is in the mirror. It, it's that constant every day. What is it that I can do to be a better person, to understand my own thoughts and feelings and emotions and, and my own physical and emotional and psychological fitness? So, so uh, am I off base on that? Or <laughs> so share with me a little bit on, on that thought that, it's got to start inside before you try to help other people. I am totally aligned with that. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, doing the work and being psychologically healthy, it can be hard. Life's arduous. Um, so I, I do think that it requires effort and practice and intention and self-awareness and being willing to be truthful with yourself and hold yourself accountable so yes, absolutely. And I, I used to tell my kids, hurting people hurt people. Mm-hmm. So if, if a, a, a kid is showing up at school and acting like a bully, they're suffering on the inside. That's your, in our internal state is very often, you know, correlated and connected with our behaviors. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia, and myself, and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work, and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Absolutely. Wow. Okay, good. I'm not uh, totally off base on that one. I, I, I wanted to believe that I wasn't, but it's always good to, you know, every now and then to kind of confirm. Uh, so, so again, back to this focus on the workplace, the individual can uh, obviously do some things to, to be more psychologically fit. Are there things that the organization could and should be doing to facilitate that? that, that, uh, that, that effort? Um, for sure. Definitely. In fact, a lot of the, the research on burnout, for example, is really, uh, comes from dysfunctional workplaces and, uh, the, the disturbing thing or concerning thing about that is people who experience burnout often will assume that they're somehow flawed that they weren't able to handle it or they weren't resilient enough um, when really we just need to recognize we have human limitation. We, we only have so much bandwidth and there's no workaround for that. And we can't undo overwork. So the conditions that we are showing up 
four every day absolutely matter. And the Surgeon General, I mean, you probably have talked about this on your podcast, the Surgeon General came out with the framework and some guidelines for how to create a, a healthy workplace culture. So those dimensions would, you know, be ensuring that there's work-life harmony and balance. So um, making sure that the demand capacity is reasonable and attainable and humane and um, understanding that people want to show up and matter at work. They want to be valued. Uh, they need to have connection. They need to be supported. They need to be protected from harm. Um, and they need to have opportunities to grow. So there are, there are some risk factors to burnout. And those would be things like if people are underpaid or if they're not viewed as being in equitable conditions or there's a values misalignment between them and their boss or them and the organization. Um, again, if, if expectations aren't reasonable. Uh, and high achievers and people who are high performers are the most at risk for burnout. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I, I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I I, I absolutely do. Just my own experience. I I, values misalignment. Again, I'm picking up some, you know, some gems here today. Uh, I I don't believe that there is a worker shortage at all. I don't. I believe that there is a values misalignment epidemic going on because there are organizations who have all they have been the same way or done things the same way for so long that they believe that it's true. And when they can't find people that will fit that their values or fit that environment, they complain that, oh, there aren't enough workers out there. No, there are plenty of workers out there. The question is whether or not you want to create an environment where they will come and work with you or stay working with you. And, And again, another example of how the pandemic exacerbated that. And, and what I say about the pandemic is it didn't change much of anything, but it exposed most of everything because yes. most of this, it was people were being underpaid prior to the pandemic. People were being put in physically unsafe conditions prior to the pandemic. They were being bullied and harassed prior to the pandemic. And there are also others that were thriving and were doing well, and they felt physically well and emotionally strong prior to the pandemic. This simply forced us to look at it because we couldn't go anyplace else. <laughs> right. I agree. It surfaced it. Yes. It surfaced it. And I, I think it's probably safe to say, you know, if we have a mental health continuum in the green zone as people are effective and thriving and flourishing and mostly happy and functioning and the other zone, the red zone would be people that are having clinical symptoms or pathology And then most of us during that period of time, because of restrictions and stressors and the uncertainty of what was going on, we're we're like in the mid zone. So I think everybody, regardless of where their baseline was or where their original set point was, we were all just down a few notches. And I know a lot of people resonated with the term languishing. Um, but I totally agree with what you just said. And that is organizations have a responsibility to create conditions where people want to come to work. That's right. 
That's right. And from a from an occupational health and safety perspective, so the general duty clause uh, under OSHA suggests that the work the employer is responsible to create a safe and healthy workplace for people. As a matter of fact, if you list out all the responsibilities under the clause, uh, there are eight or nine of them or so. Most of them are on the employer. The only responsibility, legitimate responsibility that a worker has is to follow the rules and, and, and do what the employer says. So mm-hmm. I, I honestly believe that my question earlier about are there things that the employer, the workplace can do is, you know, I guess it's kind of pejorative, I mean, not pejorative, but kind of a loaded question or, uh, because I, I believe that most of the responsibility is on the employer because you decided to get into that business. You decided what the work practices were going to be. You decide often to initiate the culture. I mean, people can bring something with them, but it is up to you to create an, create that environment where people again want to be there and can be not only physically healthy, but emotionally healthy as well. And ultimately it costs you more than it costs the person as as a business owner, as an employer, it's going to cost you more because good people, particularly high performing, uh, top notch people, they've got options. They can find someplace else to go. Can you find another good person? That's the question. It seems obvious to us, doesn't it? It does. It, it just seems so clear. It seems so clear. It seems so clear. And, 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 and another thing that, again, I, I talk about with my guest is the fact that there are Again, last count, about 30 countries around the world that have psychological health and safety requirements uh, that have policies generally under their mental health standards or their occupational safety and health standards, and often they're the same, Mm -hmm. that require employers to do something about this whole, you know, psychosocial hazard mitigation concern that I talk about so often. So, so what, what, what are your thoughts about whether or not we in the United States should have standards or regulations around workplace mental health? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it's clear where we are that, yes, it's absolutely necessary. I mean, or what's the cost? What's the, what's the cost of not having those? And I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, when you when you think about physical creating conditions to prevent physical harm, the psychological dimensions we don't have the same level of precision, so it can it feels a little harder to measure, and it feels a little harder to address because it's not as concrete and tangible. However, at the same time, what I'd say, what I would say is concrete and tangible are overt toxic work behaviors. That feels tangible to me. So whatever, you know, toxic work behaviors um, are do a lot of damage and it can be insidious. And when people are in an unhealthy work environment, um, so one that people are belittled or they're not handling conflict well or um, people aren't being straightforward or truthful, If that's in the culture, it can be, if it's in the milieu, we don't always recognize it when we're in the middle of it. And that makes it, I think, you know, challenging when people start to then question themselves, like, is this me? Is this doesn't feel okay to me, but 
it seems like everybody else is making this work. So is there something wrong with me? And that's where, you know, raising these issues and having more checks and balances and transparency in place, I think has to happen. Right. Yeah. They're they're the psychosocial hazard. We know the most about in the United States is bullying. It is. Mm-hmm. We, we know there has been, there have been decades of research, most that started in other countries, but even here in the U.S., there's a lot of research around bullying and, you know, the fact that bullying is a, a person that's in a position of power that uh, does something that causes the other person to feel, you know, stressed or harmed, and they do it repeatedly. As long as you meet that criteria, whether it be on the schoolyard or at work, we know a lot about that topic. And even if we started there, uh, and again, this is something that, you know, many other countries have, have figured out. Uh, there are at least two groups. I'm involved with both of them that have been trying to get, uh, to make bullying really illegal in the United States. And, and other than Puerto Rico, uh, other, you know, no jurisdiction has really gotten there yet. Hmm. But again, as, as you, as you stated, uh, some of this is really concrete and observable. But I would, I, I, I would argue that the fact that it's not so concrete and observable actually gives you unlimited options to be able to address it as well. And mm-hmm. if we simply focused on it. So when a person comes to work and is involved in a conflict, why don't we try to find a way to resolve the conflict as early as possible rather than further on down the road? And how the, and Jerry, that's those two people. How do we help them know that we, we really want the two of you, all the two people, because everything starts out with two parties, somebody mm-hmm. for and against something. And if we can get them to work through how they can resolve that conflict and then we come to support them, uh, just think what that would be like. There would be, again, a lot of folks. I think there would uh, more folks would probably out be buying your book <laughs> to help them be psychologically fit as opposed to coming for therapy because they were abused or harassed or mistreated at work. Often that started with conflict someplace that they didn't really know how to resolve or the model that they had is the one that they bring from their experience, which is yelling and screaming and pushing and shoving and fighting and and what have you, because that's the only tool that they have in their toolkit to include some supervisors. Yes, yes, and yes. And (laughs) and I I think, um, wouldn't it be fantastic if young people could learn some of these skills to communicate and self-regulate at a young age so that then they grow up into adults and big people who are able to self-regulate where it's kind of like the fundamentals. Um, And I, I catch myself sometimes saying like, Oh, it's complex. It's hard. Doing the work is hard and people dynamics are hard yet. Maybe that doesn't have to be that hard. Mm. Mm. You know, remember the, all I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Like, how about those basic principles? Right. Be kind and respectful and share your stuff. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. How, again, how many, how many, uh, major, so, uh, business breakups and, uh, you know, poor, ac- you know, acquisitions and mergers that don't go well. And a lot of it is really about that. I, I was, matter of fact, I was, uh, doing a presentation talking with a company here recently that, you know, they did an acquisition of a, another company, oh, three, four, five years ago. 
and they're still having difficulty sharing their stuff. And they're three, four years. These are adults, you know, many of them in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who are having difficulty sharing their stuff. <laughs> and that and that likely comes from a place of fear. Yes. And, you know, feeling threat in some way. Mm. Fear. I don't know if you ever heard the acronym false evidence appearing real. Sometimes we can act out of a, an exaggerated sense of fear. Right. I mean, fear is real and functional because there are plenty of times we should be fearful if we're in danger. Yet we sometimes um, exacerbate our distress. Right. Unnecessarily. Right. Right. So, so um, just a, 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 a couple more thoughts. Um, one is, have you seen uh, in your you know, in your goings about uh, <laughs> some situations where, you know, you look back and you go, look, they really got it. You know, they, you know, not necessarily a name, but an organization or, or a situation that you've seen where folks started off with situation, you know, X and ended up with situation Y, which turned out to be so much better and so much more healthy. Can, can you share a little bit about a, you know, maybe a, a, a quick case study or an example of you know, the organization, this was going on. And before you knew it, this was going on. I can. So I would say, let's call it a division of a company. Okay. So a division of a company that went through some transformation and some of that required a shift in leadership. But what I really believe were the levers that ended up creating, shifting this culture so that it was a more health promoting, psychologically safe, brave space, um, was leadership being willing to listen and be present with people and take the time to understand the needs of the employees on the front line, on the front lines. It required um, the leaders being really vulnerable and not pretending to be perfect which doesn't mean you need to tell your employees everything. You don't need to disclose everything about your life, but sharing in the struggle really does create trust and bond. And um, what this particular division did was work really hard at creating um, infrastructure that, that allowed for and promoted connection and collaboration in a really organized way. So I think, therefore, it, you know, increased the inclusion and increased, increased their sense of belonging and wanting and mattering. So people in this division begin to matter, feel like they matter at work. And that's a lot of research is showing us like that is such a critical component. I mean, it always has been. We just have more names for it now. Um, and I think it was it was encourage that people have open dialogue about what their challenges are without retaliation. So it has to be okay to say to your boss, I'm not sure I can get this done and not worry about that having negative implications on your job, your pay, your performance review or whatnot. Because, um, you know, what I see with so many high achievers is they can become if they're if they're not in a health promoting environment that's that they're able to speak up, they can become silent warriors. Mm -hmm. We're like, I'm just gonna put my head down and get the thing done. I'm always that person. I'm the go-to person. I get it done, I'll figure it out. 
and you know, that works for a time, but it's not sustainable. Mm. Hmm. Wow. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm finding myself, you know, it just a lot of you're saying it's, it just resonates. It, it really does. Uh, particularly, and that's something I'll take away from the conversation is that, you know, that high achiever, uh, because I find myself, you know, I, honestly, I, I, I've been one of those myself. I, my, my children that way, my wife's that way. I, I kind of live in that environment that, I, and frankly, I tend to hang out around people that are high achievers. And, and that's a, I think that's a personal thing because I, I guess I want to believe, I want to look at myself and, and, and feel that I'm around, you know, successful people uh, because who wants to hang out with folks who are, uh, you know, kind of barely making it and barely getting by and all that type of thing. I, I realize that that might be some folks experience, but it's difficult for, that's a difficult environment for me to hang out in that, you know, a little bit of more, more d- disclosure. I, I uh, my, my, my mom was a teenager when I was born. And you talked about having five children. There were seven of us. So I, 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 you know, I, some people consider those large families. No, not really. Uh, they're actually small. I mean, there are a lot of folks who back in the day would, you know, had dozens, but, um, but there, there's, there's something about being around other people that you believe are being successful and achieving that helps you achieve. At least, at least it does me. Uh, so I, I like getting to know people that I think are intelligent, that have a lot on the ball, that are striving. And I don't want to be the smartest person in the room all the time because I'm not learning anything. I want to be around folks who are better at this. And that is uh, that's probably a, one of the reasons that I've kind of reached out and have had opportunity to chat with you, because this is uh, this has been very helpful for me. As So as we as we conclude, um, are there ways that, you know, folks. You know, they're they're looking to to learn more about what you do, to learn more about you know the book and about your practice and all that, and they want to reach out to you. How how would they do that? How would they how they follow up with you on some of the conversations that that we've been having today? Yes, great. I mean, I would love to hear from people, and and I wanted to comment what you were saying at the end about you know we want to be around people, of course, that are going to elevate us and that we feel good around and that are also thriving and because that's contagious. So that's, that's healthy. I like to think of that as the idea of having upper companions. As long as it's inspiring and helpful for us and it doesn't turn into us comparing ourselves saying, oh, I, I should be further along like this guy. He gets so much done. Uh, and that's that's where that's like the fine line of we want to be able to thrive and be challenged and engaged without the unnecessary distress, which is the subtitle of my book, How High Performers Achieve with Ease. So we want to achieve and be challenged and engaged without the unnecessary distress that we create for ourselves. So where to find me? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. That's where we found each other. And drkarendahl.com. Uh, my book is at any bookstore. It's on Amazon, any bookstore. You can find it or order it and would love to hear from people. I am super passionate about coming in and talking to teams about this stuff and helping them set themselves up for success and get a plan and a strategy moving forward um, so that they can find a way to apply this and um and bring some of the practices into the workplace so that they can do it together. Together is better. 
Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I, I um, yeah, in my you know research around these topics, I, I've I found uh, there's a statistic out there that suggests that 155 million people in this country are in communities or areas that lack access to mental health related services. Mm. And again, I do believe that this has been a bit of a blessing uh, relative to the, the pandemic and what we've been going through is that we now have a new view on what access means. And mm-hmm. I don't necessarily, because the person uh, is not down the street, I can't walk, catch the bus or drive my car to their office. Uh, I can now, you know, do these things virtually. Um, and, and I can reach out to people, even though I live in Georgia, I can reach out to people in Minnesota <laughs> and, uh, get really helpful information that can help me be a better person. That can help my organization be a better organization. So again, uh, Karen, thanks so much for sharing uh, some of your expertise and, uh, some quips and quotes. I, I just, I, I love quotes. I, I love, you know, I love hearing people. Make again, they are complicated topics, but making them simple in language that we can all understand. And so, for those of you who have been following along, uh, please do join both of us. Uh, I'm also active out on LinkedIn, and uh, the podcast has a presence on LinkedIn that you can follow and uh, catch information about our next episode. You can go to the podcast, has a webpage, psychhealthandsafetyusa.com, and you can find this episode. Uh, all of our previous episodes are there uh, if you want to kind of catch up on what's been going on. And if you're really interested and want to follow the Flourish DX YouTube page, you can actually see uh, what you're hearing. Of course, most folks do listen to these episodes, but if you want to see what's going on, uh, you can follow us on YouTube. So, again, thanks very much for joining us for this episode. Dr. Karen Dahl, we've, en- we've enjoyed having you, enjoyed your insights. I'm so appreciative that you um, have this this outlet and this channel and that you're holding the space to talk about these really important things. And honestly, I I really think every conversation matters. And if one person can be helped by this one dialogue and know that they aren't alone, the more we do that, the more we can have a ripple effect. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. And thanks to you again for for tuning in. uh, And we'll see you on the next episode, the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.